How are you today? Good. It's nice to see so many of you here. Welcome to those that are online as well. Um, just a reminder, we're going through the book of Nehemiah and the subtitle, Rebuilding Out of Brokenness. The idea is we've experienced a lot of brokenness in the last year. And so we thought we'd go back into Nehemiah and look at how they dealt with uh, the brokenness that they were coming out of, too. And I think it was last week I may have mentioned that they were coming out of like 150 years of brokenness, hard to fathom. Uh, and we've endured a year, a year of that. No guarantee that it's going to get any better moving forward. There's some signs of hope, i.e. vaccines. Uh, but anyway, that's why we're there. We're in Nehemiah chapter 5 today, and I want to tell you that I couldn't believe how apropos Nehemiah 5 is for us today, whether it's talking about us as a church or what we call the Big C Church, uh, and even in our country. And so I hope that you see the parallels like I have, and I'm going to try and communicate that today. Uh, but that's where we're at um, in Nehemiah chapter 5. So most of you have probably heard the phrase, cancel culture in the last couple years. And I have heard it probably, but I didn't pay much attention to what it was talking about until a little bit more recently. Um, here's a succinct definition that I've found. I, I hope it's not too simplistic. Cancel culture is the idea that a person or group can be culturally minimized from having a prominent public platform or impact. And what occurred to me is that there are words that Jesus followers, that churches, that preachers sometimes use that when the secular, um, unchurched culture hears those words or phrases or concepts, they can be quick to cancel us. And I want to give you just a couple. I, we, we don't have time to go over every theological concept or doctrine that might sound strange to what I would call unchurched secular culture. And the first one, I think, is a little bit humorous. Uh, the idea is washed in the blood. Have you ever heard that phrase? And can you imagine someone that didn't go to church and had never read the Bible, never been in church, comes to church and hears that they need to be washed in the blood? And I had a mentor who, that was part of his testimony. I heard him give his testimony quite a few times. And he came, 28 years old, out of a completely unchurched background, into the church. And he said when he heard that phrase, it absolutely freaked him out. As you can well imagine. Like, when does that happen? Gee whiz, what am I doing here? Let me out. And there's a little more serious ones. Um, shame and guilt. I don't know about you, but I sometimes get the sense that in our wider cultural context, the idea that, that all shame and all guilt should be rejected. And I see that Scripture teaches us that there's a legitimate shame and an illegitimate or sometimes called toxic shame that's out there. I see Scripture teaches us about a legitimate shame. And, and it's the same with guilt. There's like a legitimate guilt and, and then a toxic guilt. 
Some of us might refer to it as Catholic guilt, if you're from a Catholic background. Like I, I still struggle with Catholic guilt um, on occasion. And so legitimate shame exposes our depravity. It's like Adam and Eve in the garden. They experienced a legitimate shame. And one author said this, legitimate shame will nudge us into the light of God's presence, where legitimate guilt will then carry us home to true repentance. Illegitimate or toxic shame is an intrusion on our inherent dignity as image bearers of God. It's the awful experience of becoming aware that we are seen as deficient or undesirable by someone whom we hope will deeply enjoy us. And the third biblical concept that our culture may desire to quickly cancel without understanding what it really means is what we find here at the heart of Nehemiah chapter 5, the fear of God. Like shame, there's a healthy and holy fear, and then there's this unholy terror that can be masqueraded as a healthy fear. And from my perspective, we see this kind of unholy terror mostly in abusive relationships that terrorizes oftentimes women or children. And today we're going to be talking about obtaining a healthy and holy fear of God. Yet I, I need to clearly state as we get going here that if, if you are in a relationship that is abusive in any way, spiritually, emotionally, physically, sexually, you need to separate as quickly as you can. Every once in a while, we need to bring this up because this kind of thing happens. And so we need to say that that's not okay. And if that's happening to you online in this room, we want to offer our staff and our elders as discreet people that you could contact, and we would help you in any way that we can. Unholy fear is not okay. So with that said, I want to turn <clears throat> excuse me, our attention to walking in a healthy and holy fear of God. Nehemiah 5, 19 verses, chapter 5. And what we'll see is the key verse, I, I would say, or the thesis statement verse, is found in verse 9, pretty much at the center of the chapter. And so what I want to do is read the chapter. You can follow along if you'd like or just listen. And then I'll pray and then we'll jump in. 19 verses. Hang in there. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We are sons and our daughters are many. Therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. There was a famine in the land. And there were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. 
Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are, are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. Then Nehemiah kicks in. And he says, then I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, you are exacting usury, each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers, and we are sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? And then they were silent and could not find a word to say. And again I said, and here's the verse, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? And likewise, I said to my brothers, my servants are, leading, are lending them money and grain. Please, let us leave off this usury. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, and also a hundredth part of the money and of the grain and the new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them. And then I said, we will give it and then they said, sorry, we will give it back and we'll require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and, and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. I also shook out the front of my garment and said, thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord, and then the people did according to this promise. Moreover, from that day I was appointed, from the day I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten of the governor's food allowance, but the former governor's who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants dominated the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land. They didn't buy up the land and become landlords. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, uh, there was at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day was an ox and six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me. And once in 10 days, all sorts of wine was furnished in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. Verse 19, remember me, O oh my God, for good according to all that I have done for this people. Again, this final verse, verse 19, this prayer of Nehemiah, I would say it's a little iffy. 
uh, it's not a prayer that I would feel comfortable praying. And if you missed it, this is what he said. Remember me, oh my God, for good according to all that I have done for this people. For me, that's kind of an iffy prayer. For instance, looking back perhaps on my time as the intentional interim pastor, I don't feel like I could pray that prayer. Uh, remember me for all the good I've done for Community Covenant Church. I think my prayer would be like, Lord, I know in spite of me, your good hand has been upon this church, and you have done good things in this church. That, that would be the, the kind of prayer that I would pray. So again, I think we just need to notice Nehemiah's humanity here. And I think we find that with all the Old Testament and New Testament characters. They're, they're more like us than we realize. We put, tend to put them up on a pedestal, but they're, they're really like a lot like you and I. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this time. As always, we ask that you would be the teacher, that you would affirm and encourage us, uh, that you would feel free to rebuke us as well, and that you speak to the hearts of your people. And we give this time to you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see from these verses that Nehemiah has his hands full. In the previous chapters, we see the opposition from outside the walls. And in this chapter, we see opposition coming from inside the walls. And I think Nehemiah knew what was going on, and I think he was waiting, biding his time to speak to some of these issues. What we find in this chapter is that there's systemic oppression of the poor. It's been being built back into the social system, and Nehemiah confronts it very directly. There's five observations to help us understand what's going on in chapter 5 here. I'll try and be quick. Verse 3 tells us there's a famine in the land. Verse 4 tells us that there's a tax payable to the king. And there was this upper-class Jewish people who were offering what amounts to second and third mortgages to the people with very high interest rates, usury. Verse 5 tells us that this upper class was forcing their own countrymen to sell their children into what's called debt slavery, and they were apparently selling their own people to the Gentiles. And you could extract from that chapter that some of their daughters were sold into sexual slavery. It doesn't specifically say that, but it does seem to intimate that. And Nehemiah seems to have been a wealthy man. We think of him as the cupbearer uh, of the king, but I think it would be better to think of him like the food and beverage manager and head of security for the king. He wasn't that guy that just wandered into the kitchen and, and took a a sip of wine to see if it was poison. You can bet that Nehemiah had, was thinking security and all the food, all the wine, everything that went to the king. So food and beverage manager, head of security, he was apparently a fairly wealthy man. We see in verse 10 that Nehemiah lent money and grain to the people. In verses 14 through 19, we see Nehemiah's example. He did not take the governor's food allowance, which would have come from taxing the people for that allowance. Verse 16, he did not buy up the land. I mentioned that 
or take advantage of those that were struggling. He could have bought up all this land and become a landlord and extracted uh, rent and fees. Uh, he didn't do that. Verses 17 and 18, Nehemiah had a minimum of 150 people over for dinner every night. And he paid for it out of his own pocket. And I already told you what I think about verse 19. So again, I think the main point of this chapter, and I think where we can really lean in today, is verse 9. Again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? So the fear of God is something we bounce around and talk about, something that the outside world will look in and go, that doesn't sound right to me, that God would want to be feared. But then there's, there's not a great understanding of what that means and what that looks like. And so that's what we want to talk about today a bit. What we need is a good definition of a healthy and holy fear. And I came across one, uh, pastor, theologian, Douglas O'Donnell. He went to the book of Proverbs, and he constructed this definition of the fear of the Lord by taking different verses out of Proverbs. And I put it in the notes, that if you're online, uh, in the notes section, uh, I put this quote along with the little outline of the sermon. But let's look at this. This is what he says, according to the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is a continual, humble, and faithful submission to God, which compels one to hate evil and turn away from it and brings with it rewards better than all earthly treasures, the rewards of love for and knowledge of God and long life, confidence, satisfaction, and protection. I think he did an excellent job of going back to Proverbs and extracting pieces to construct a wonderful uh, definition. And then someone else, uh, 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 um, the late Jerry Bridges, he died a few years ago. I would recommend any book if you come across any book by Jerry Bridges. But he wrote a book entitled The Joy of Fearing God. And in the book, he attempts to unpack the paradox of having a healthy, holy fear of God. It's not something to avoid, he says. It's something to embrace. Here's what he said. A healthy and holy fear of God is an important key to a joyful, fulfilling, genuine intimacy with God. Nehemiah 5, there's at least three ways that we see in the text to actively walk in a healthy and holy fear of God. So, as usual, I'm going to give those to you, and then we'll go back and look at them one at a time. The fear of the Lord means that we commit to practicing biblical justice, caring for the poor with a willingness to speak truth to power. Number two, we see in Nehemiah 5, The fear of the Lord means that we commit to practicing biblical conflict resolution. And number three, the fear of the Lord lives with the knowledge that our personal integrity is being observed. If people in your life, work, neighborhood, family, friends, they know that you're a believer, 
Jesus follower, they're watching. They're watching you. And so we'll talk a little bit about that too. So let's go back and look at those individually. The fear of the Lord means that we will commit to practic practicing biblical justice, caring for the poor with a willingness to speak truth to power. And as many of you know, one of the most often quoted verses in the Bible is Micah 6, 8. It says, he has told you, O man, what is good. God has told you. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? So we need to ask, what does it mean to do justice? It's a good question. Another one of my literary mentors, uh, Tim Keller, wrote a book called Generous Justice, which I would encourage. But this is what he says it means to do justice. To do justice means giving people what they are due, whether it is protection or care or punishment, regardless of social, racial, gender, or economic status. Now, I would absolutely agree that this is a true statement and represents biblical thinking. But I would also add a caveat here. While the statement is true, and I would add that if, if in this country we have built social and political systems that include systemic racism and systemic sexism, we must acknowledge that people of color and then women in general have not had the same access to resources and opportunities. And these injustices must be lovingly and persistently addressed. If there are systems, because I know there's some people who don't believe that we have systemic racism. I think it would be a little harder to believe that we don't have systemic sexism. And so what we hear here is that they need to be lovingly and persistently addressed. My definition of justice is simpler. I don't know if it's mine or I got it somewhere, so we'll just assume it's mine. Justice is seeking the highest good in every situation. Seeking the highest good in every situation. In his book, uh, I'm sorry, in his speech, Martin Luther King Jr., Montgomery Bus Boycott Speech, 1955, said this, justice is love correcting that which revolts against love. <clears throat> I've, I've read a lot of King's speeches and words. I think that this may be one of the most profound things he ever said. I think it's, uh, it's amazing. Justice is love, correcting that which revolts against love. That's deep. It's heavy. It's awesome. It's biblical. In my studies, I have found that seeking justice is, is at the very heart of the reason that Jesus was willing to leave the majesty, the perfection of heaven, and come down into our rubble, our brokenness. And we see this in Luke 4, 18 and 19, which is actually a quote from Isaiah 61. 
And Jesus is, in, in speaking these words, he's launching his public ministry. And you're probably familiar if you've been around church for a while. But let's just review it, Luke 4, 18 and 19. So Jesus comes back in from 40 days of fasting. He comes to the synagogue, comes to church, grabs the, um, the Old Testament, um, and he picks it up and he reads from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he, you remember the verse, he says, and then he said, he said down the scroll, and he said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing, and people went bananas. Um, they couldn't believe this Jesus. Who, who is this guy? As Jesus concludes his earthly ministry, this passage becomes the calling of every Christ follower, and it also becomes the calling of the church, the big C church, the little C church, and I would suggest that this passage is summarized in the Great Commission. So in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, and most of you know it, Jesus says, go. And when he says go, I believe it summarizes Luke 4, 18 and 19. He's saying, go, preach the gospel to the poor. He's saying, go, proclaim release to the captives. He's saying, go, recovery of sight to the blind. He's saying, go, set free those who are oppressed. That's what go means, that we go back to this passage. And the proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, that needs a little um, explaining. The year of Jubilee is referring to. It's a semi-centennial festival of the Jewish people that lasted for a year. And during this year, all debts were canceled, and all those who were slaves were set free. And the, what, so what Luke 4.19 is saying that is upon acceptance of Jesus Christ and his message, our sin debt is canceled, and we are freed from enslavement to our sinful nature, the gospel. Number two. The fear of the Lord means that we commit to practicing biblical conflict resolution. If you've been around this church for the last year and a half or so, we have talked a lot, I think. Not as much as we could have, but we've talked a lot about biblical conflict resolution. Going through the Beatitudes, remember, peacemaker versus peacekeeper. And I think I even unpacked a, a sermon on, on, uh, on, on Matthew 18, biblical discipline, etc. I just want to take a, review, uh, a few moments to review that. Some of the commentators of, of Nehemiah, chapter 5, compare how Nehemiah handled the conflict in chapter 5 as being similar to the church discipline process in Matthew 18. You'll notice if you go back and look that Nehemiah confronted the nobles and the rulers in private first. And the text doesn't tell us how they responded or reacted. And then, in verse 7 tells us, he held a great assembly where he confronted everybody. And by the way, commentators are about 50-50 whether Nehemiah sinned when it says he got angry. I was very angry. Some commentators say he sinned in that. We don't know. There's a holy anger, a righteous anger, and an unrighteous anger. 
what we know is that Nehemiah was a fiery guy. And we find out at the end of the book that he indeed has an anger problem. If you haven't read chapter 13, you'll find that out. And so there's this anger circulating around. So a review of Matthew 18, we usually pull out verses 15, 16, and 17 to talk about conflict resolution or church discipline. It says, if your brother sins, go show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses even uh, to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. Now, we've, we've unpacked that uh, in the past, and if you need to go back and search that out, you can. I think it's important to see what ties the whole chapter of Matthew 18 together, because we tend to pull out those three verses and kind of look at them, but the whole chapter is concerned for the spiritual needy which includes the powerless, those victimized by sin and people who have, been, who have sinned against other people and have not repented. That's what the whole context of that Matthew 18 is about. With that being said, there's three stages of conflict resolution. It's not just about Matthew 18. It's not just about church discipline. It's a pattern for effective conflict resolution. So verse 15, we see loving one another, a loving one another inquiry. What most of us, what I've tried to, to uh, talk about as something that I found very helpful in conf- confrontation moments or what could be a difficult uh, uh, dialogue or engagement uh, is start always starting with the question, help me understand. When we're moving into a difficult conversation, If you start with that question, help me understand why you just yelled at me or why you just yelled at your kids or whatever. That assumes, when we say help me understand, it assumes that the person has a perfectly good reason for what they just did and to help share it with me. But that leads us into what could be a difficult conversation. The second point in this is loving concern for truth by two to three witnesses. That if you have an engagement, a conversation with somebody, and you don't feel heard in that conversation or engagement, it's always good to bring in a mediator type. You know, that's, that, 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 that is for both parties. Outside objective input. That's another way to handle conflict resolution. And then Number three, verse 17, loving communication, possible restructuring of the relationship as needed. And so that's an overview of biblical conflict resolution, a very quick one. Leads us to number three, the fear of the Lord lives with the knowledge that our personal integrity is being observed. And again, people are watching us. People are watching this church. People are watching the Big C Church. It's helpful for us to know that they are watching and to live like we know that they're watching. The less observable integrity that we have, 
the more quickly secular culture will cancel us. The less integrity they see, personal or corporate level, the more quickly they will write us off and cancel us. Persecution is a given. It's going to happen. But we don't have to take out a gun and shoot ourselves in the foot either. That's been happening at an alarming rate in the Big C Church. And it breaks my heart. The church has been pushed to the margins of society, and a lot of that is our own fault. Now, the good news is the Bible is written to people at the margins of society. Personal and observable integrity is not about you and I having it all together. Personal and observable integrity is about you and I, when we blow it, we own it. And that we're quick to own it when we blow it. You're going to lose your temper? Sure. You're going to say things you regret, whether it's to a family member or a friend or a co-worker. You're going to do things that you regret. So personal, observable integrity is not about pretending that you have it together. It's about owning your own stuff. When we blow it, we own it. The final six verses in Nehemiah 5 are laying out what it means to be both integrous and generous. I already shared a little bit with you about this. Nehemiah and his family talks about his kinsmen. Remember, it was his brother that came and told him about Jerusalem when he was still at the king's palace. He and his family did not tax the people's food supply. They did not dominate the people they were governing. Verse 15 states the primary reason for his integrity and his generosity was because of the fear of the Lord, a holy and healthy fear of God. He led from the front. He and his servants led by example in the rebuilding of the wall. So he'd earned some street cred, right? Or maybe you'd call it wall cred. He led from the front. I've been at churches, you know, where the, where the parking space by the front door was reserved for the pastor. That infuriates me. I'd say, Pastor, you, you park a block away. And maybe put a sign on that that said a parking space for single moms. That's a better use of that kind of parking place. Pastors are people too, and we ought to act like people and not act like we're something special. Even though he was apparently wealthy, as I mentioned, he didn't buy up all the land and impose financial hardship on the people. Instead, he advocated for the returning exiles, that they have their own land, their own crops, their own households would be safe from all the different various forms of extortion. 
And as I mentioned, it appears that he fed 100 people every night, 150 people every night, out of his own pocket. Or maybe like a good politician, he raised the money so we could feed 150 people a day. These are acts of both integrity and generosity. And these become a model, if not the model, for the church, our church, on how we can live with integrity and generosity, caring for the poor. I have been saddened by the seemingly endless news reports of evangelical pastors and leaders using and abusing sincere Christians for their own financial gain and or sexual pleasure. It breaks my heart. And I think we can trace a lot of that horrible, horrible activity to Christian leaders, pastors, not having a healthy and holy fear of God. And on behalf of pastors, I would apologize to you because it is not pretty out there right now. But that doesn't mean that we can't engage, lean into what it means to have a healthy and holy fear of God. And that we, at some level, use Nehemiah's generosity and his integrity. Again, he's not a perfect guy, right? We know that. But we use that and let that be a model to us. And even more so, Jesus leaving the perfection, majesty of heaven, coming down into our brokenness. And Nehemiah leaving the palace and coming into the brokenness of the people with all his imperfections and leaning in. As we land a plane here, consider this. Someone has said that all, in all conflict, Satan tends to remain neutral and supply ammunition to both sides. I'm thinking of politics now. I don't know if you are. Let me read that again. In all conflict, somebody said, Satan tends to remain neutral and supply ammunition to both sides. I think we've been seeing that. Our adversary, the devil, likes to divide God's people or divide a nation by getting them to wrong one another and then to not deal biblically or honestly with the problems that arise. Boom. That's what's wrong. We must be committed to walking in a healthy and holy fear of God, resolving inevitable conflicts God's way, and committed to pursuing integrity as well as generosity to the poor. In closing, here's the essence of the gospel reduced to three quick points. Our sinfulness, or maybe I'll turn it around. I'm saying our, but I want to say you just because it might be more impactful. Your sinfulness 
is your biggest problem. Not how you've been wronged. Forgiveness, not achievement, is your greatest need. Repentance, not willpower, is the dynamic of all real change. That's the gospel, folks. And sometimes we get our strategies wrong. We go after the wrong things and sometimes spend years doing that. Our sinfulness is our biggest problem. Forgiveness is our greatest need, which should lead to worship, by the way, once we realize that we are actually forgiving, we are loved by God. The Christian life is lived in this healthy and holy tension. We're humble because we know that we are sinners. That keeps us humble. But we are bold because we know that we are loved by God. Do you see how that works? We're humble and we're bold all at the same time. That's what a mature Christian life looks like, humble and bold. Nehemiah came out of the palace to offer a broken and dispirited people a way forward. Jesus came out of heaven to offer you and me the gift of salvation. Will you acknowledge your sinfulness, either afresh or maybe for the first time? Will you receive God's forgiveness, afresh or maybe for the first time? which, by the way, again, leads to worship. Will you walk in ongoing repentance? To sum it all up, the way in to the Christian life is the way on. The way in is the way on. Just like we learned in the Beatitudes, acknowledging our spiritual poverty, that never really goes away. We can grow, but it never really goes away. Mourning over our sinful condition, selfishness, etc., and the, and the world around us. Walking in humility, meekness, a humble learner. That's what meekness means. Becoming a humble learner before God and before people. Nehemiah 5. Let's pray together. Lord, it's hard to imagine that you want to use broken people like us to build your church, to grow your church. But you do. Nehemiah was a flawed man. You put something in his heart, a passion for yourself, a passion for people that changed the course of history. Lord, may you call every one of us to yourself. May you give us purpose for our good and for your glory. 
Lord, we pray for the big C church. Lord, we've hurt ourselves. We've not walked in a healthy and holy fear of God. Your leaders have not. And while many pastors, most pastors, are so, so faithful, we so often see those that stumble and fall. Forgive us, Lord. Lord, we pray for this church, Community Covenant Church, that you would draw us after you and that we would run together with you continually. Again, for our good and for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.